Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. Each week, we will compare notes from the week's events, connect the dots to past and present experiences and racial patterns in America, and connect with community members from many different perspectives who are themselves trying to make sense of this moment. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with the pain. James Baldwin. I could give a lot of James Baldwin quotes this week in particular, uh, when he talks about trying to remember what they what we believe as well as what they do and cause you to endure does not testify to your inferiority, but to their inhumanity. There are so many different reasons. In a week where we saw um, somebody drive their car into demonstrators, when we um, are gearing up for next week's sentencing of Derek Chauvin, as we uh, commemorate the anniversary the unfortunate and tragic anniversary of Duluth lynchings. There's been a lot that has happened since the last time we were together on Bearing Witness. So, Ms. George, I'm going to kick it over to you quick, uh, just because there are so many things happening that we want to make sure to put in front of us as we engage our conversation and bring in our special guests today. So, Ms. Georgia, catch us back up for the week. Absolutely. On a federal level, we saw Joe Biden sign uh, the bill into law that Juneteenth will now be a federal holiday and some mixed reviews. Some people very celebratory, other folks saying it is not enough. It's not tangible change. It's not real change. Uh, But nonetheless, it is, uh, I think, hopeful to see these conversations surrounding Uh, racial reckoning uh, approaching a national level. On the other hand, Minneapolis has, again, become uh, the, the epicenter of this movement around police accountability. The only difference between last summer and this summer is it feels like this time the world is not watching. It looks like it feels like the world has has turned away, that they're they're tired of hearing this story, even though it's still unfolding right here in our backyard. After nearly two weeks of daily protests surrounding the death of Winston Smith, a vehicle drove into a a crowd of protesters killing Deanna Marie. And uh, protests and and vigils continued at that speed Space. Up until recently, uh, the mayor reached out to the governor asking that the National Guard be activated once again. And I found myself as a journalist at somewhat of a pause because I'm, I'm covering these stories, I'm following these stories, and then also I am consuming the national news. And I can't help but ask myself, How are these series of events not making national news? How is it not making national news that we have a Black man who was killed by a federal federal task force that did not have body camera footage? You have the attorney come out and say that she did not see him with a gun. You have, similar to what happened in Charlottesville, which did make national, if not international news, you have a vehicle drive into a protest, kill a woman. And then now the National Guard is activated. But Hmm. it has become so commonplace 
in our country to use the military against our own people here on our own soil, it has become so commonplace that it's no longer newsworthy. And when you internalize that, it makes you reckon with the reality that we we might be embarking on or in the middle of some type of civil war. Hmm. I, I don't I don't understand how the National Guard can be deployed, be activated, and it not make national news. But that's because this has become so commonplace. Well, you know. <laughs> You know, as we as we talk about the historical pattern pieces of this, right, this fits right into that pattern that we see over and over again. And you touch on a couple of them. You know, we we I think in an earlier conversation, you know, the we 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 are stuck in a place of being sick and tired of black blood needing to be uh, the sacrifice, needing to be the 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 um, perverse altar for which our consciousness in the United States seems to be tied to, and wanting to dis disconnect from that. Um, tragic pattern, while at the same time um, seeing uh, our quote-unquote advancement that folks have tried to make for years. The Juneteenth bill, the, the, the making Juneteenth a national holiday, holiday has been something that has been in the works and on the lips and on the minds of communities for years. Um, and now it, it rings to us hollow and bittersweet. It, 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 I actually had a, a sense the, the moment that, that the news broke. Um, I it just as the universe works. I was reading again um, uh, Frederick Douglass's speech. What to the slave is the Fourth of July, um, and I have a very similar wondering what <laughs> what to the United States is Juneteenth in this real space. I mean, there's a, there's a hollowness to it that definitely rings there as well. You you also touch upon a pattern though um, of forgetfulness. Um, one of the things as we come into the space of celebrating Juneteenth, one of the first things that happen. Um, after General Gordon Granger was forced to Galveston, Texas, to read Special Order Number Three, um, is people speculating or people um, going to the sense of moving "quote unquote" beyond, and there's surprise at the civility of the celebrations and all these news articles that showed us what we really thought about us. And um, I can't help but but to see a correlation between this moment where folks had been fighting hard to be directly connected to the, the the horrors that this country has had had put forward and wanting to continue that conversation and seeing that because of um, the end of the Civil War, that all of a sudden the space for that type of organizing, even the words and the conversations around abolitionists went deathly quiet after this conflict had, had ended and shifted to something else. And I see, you know, that we're, we may be in the midst of another similar shift. Uh, we saw similar shifts after, um, um, after the Depression era um, organizing and work that happened after the, the, the work in the 60s around voting, voting rights. And when the Civil Rights Bill was passed, we see this low point, this what's called the Nadir period um, of folks trying to forget or, quote unquote, move past. And so uh, that is definitely of, of particular concern as you tell, as you give those stories and lay out those patterns here. Um, and, and so... I'm curious, as people be continue organizing and continue trying to keep this front and center and national and international attention starts to wane, we're going to start seeing the real, uh, the real grit, the real commitments that folks have made in lip service tested in this, in this capacity coming forward. I'm curious as what you see coming in and those tests that are to come. Well, I think the test is really going to be on corporate America. 
mm. corporate America who made all of these economic promises to, uh, you know, make more equitable communities to be more equitable in terms of their vending list, to be more equitable in terms of those who they hire, uh, just explicitly going out to give away money to Black businesses. It was all of these pledges that were made last year, hundreds of millions of dollars that there hasn't been much accounting for. Uh, they They haven't explicitly come out and said, hey, you know, we gave this money to uh, this company. We gave money to, uh, we don't know where that money went. No one is really tracking it. And so I think, and, and I've started to hear these conversations um, come up in, in different spaces where people want to start approaching uh, corporation by corporation and asking them for, for this pledge that you made, where did it, where did it go? Hmm. But to your point about lip, lip service, we saw so many statements about, uh, racial equity and racial justice last year. And now it, there's crickets. You're not hearing anything for this community to have endured uh, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, then, you know, the fatal shooting of Dante Wright. Then now here, Winston Smith, you know, is you just only show up when there's camera footage. You only show up when there it. it it's horrific and it lasts nine minutes and 29 seconds, hmm. you know, like, so all these different things. Um, but, but I do think that we're at a, a turning point um, and, and people are tired, Anthony, people are really tired of coming out and um, making these demands and, and getting that lip service. Oh yes, we're here for you. Things are going to change. I think even about this week when 65,000 physical signatures were delivered to uh, the governor's office, we're more than a year past the murder of George Floyd and there still hasn't been meaningful legislation passed. So I think people's uh, claims of there being a lot of lip service are are very valid. And and just to be clear, right now, um, I saw in your reporting that the the National Guard is on standby, quote unquote, in case protests turn violent. But the only violence that we've seen has been on the part of somebody outside of those trying to attack protesters, right? Yeah. And when you think about uh, the way that that was diminished, even by mainstream media, the fact that uh, there was no investigation done to find out if this man had affiliations to white supremacy groups, Nicholas Cross, who's who has now been charged with murder and has a one million dollar bond. But why? Why didn't mainstream media investigate to find out? if he had any affiliations, if there was any signs of text messages or messages in, you know, Signal or any of these underground apps that could point to this being a planned attack. Instead, the very first narrative that came out was that he was um, driving drunk, which you you heard from the person who apprehended him until the police got there that they didn't smell alcohol on his breath. You also... When you look at what he was charged with, can see he was not charged with driving under the influence. He was initially charged with vehicular homicide, driving after suspension, and giving police false information 
And of those three charges, the one charge that was upgraded was the homicide charge, which was upgraded to murder. But so, you know, acknowledge the fact that that diminishes and minimizes the violence that he caused to just write it off and say, oh, it was just a total accident. He was drunk. You know, he has mental health issues, fell asleep behind the wheel. When in fact, there's no evidence at this point that he was actually drinking. And so so that, again, calling out those patterns, how we minimize the violence, how we minimize when it, when it suits um, a narrative that doesn't address <laughs> the issues of marginalized communities. I mean, we, we, we see the pattern over and over again. I, I think um, one of the things in, in, in just in, in your coverage, even of the organizing and even the press conference that was given where the, where the signatures were handed over to the governor, um, we, we are in the space of a, of a real, of the real test not just, you know, as we we talked about earlier, Frederick, that other Frederick Douglass quote, you know, that the the um, doing wrong by choice and right by necessity. Um, you know, we're in a test space now seeing what happens when the necessity of your political of political position, the necessity of being on quote unquote publicly on the right side. Um, now we have the test of what's going to be done with the real work on the ground. Um, and it's a test that that harkens us all the way back to our first episode, Watch Night Service. Watching what's going to happen, our our our, our age old practice for multi generational African Americans with the history through captivity in the United States, having to constantly be in a space of doing our work, taking care of ourselves, doing it brilliantly, um, and working our behinds off to do that, and while bringing in generations, while also watching and and, and waiting, um, and in this space, I think all of these are questions that are coming into the mind, even though we have benchmarks that are coming from from. Um, the trial and the officer who shot um, Dante Wright to the sentencing of Derek Chauvin to the trials of the other officers. We have touch point moments that are still to come. And I get, I think a looming question that definitely is on my mind is how much, um, how much are we willing to stick in, in bear witness? Or are we going to take the breath that, beca- you know, that turns into a weight that becomes the weight that drowns us in our own well? Um, mm. You know, that this, these are looming questions that, everybody's struggling with, including our own internal decision-making for everyday things that are still present, right? We don't get a breath, you know, from this, from the things that quote-unquote were international. As we get ready to bring in our guests, one of the things that I have to, you know, reiterate that we keep talking about um, is that some of us don't get a breath, right? We may do everything we can to self-heal, but there are multiple things happening in multiple fronts and we have to simultaneously keep attention and focus on the things that matter at our federal level, um, to our local level, to our internal community levels. And all of those are all happening at the same time. But one thing that is true, and that has been true and borne out throughout our history, is we, we are definitely, um, you know, for all marginalized communities, from our indigenous brothers and sisters, our Latinx brothers and sisters, um, our, to, to our, 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 our black and brown community spaces, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. In fact, we can walk, chew gum, raise next generations, create amazing music that gets stolen and we have to innovate even more beyond that to do even more. If one thing that we have proven <laughs> is that we can do multiple things at once. Um, and so I want to underscore that. Um, a- as we, we, Ms. George, I got one more question before we bring in our guests, to, you know, as, 
as we get ready for some of the coming decisions and you are are watching some of the mobilizing that's happening on legal battles fronts, uh, you know, on these multiple er er um, multiple spaces, um, and you haven't made it made it to Tulsa to cover that story, and let alone up to Duluth and some of the story that you broke with the um, police chief who's a descendant of the woman who made the, the the accusation, right? It was his great aunt or something like that yeah. who made the accusation yeah. in the Duluth lynchings. Um, what are some of the through lines for how folks are coping with the moment, you know, and organizing in multiple levels just because you see it? Well, I would say that there are some people who are coping and I'd say that there are some people who are not. Hmm. Uh, we're we're at this point now where this movement has been happening right here in our home for over a year. And some folks who have been so persistent uh, that they have started to get in a rhythm and a habit of neglecting their self. Uh, and that is their their sacrifice that they're making to move and advance this forward. Uh, and so on the other hand, you have people like Dr. Joy Lewis, Resma Menakim, and there's so many other healers who are in community and who are actively uh, reaching out and trying to equip people with the, the knowledge to self-identify when they're not coping and to uh, remind them of uh, the things that we have free access to you can get up and turn on music and dance anytime and it doesn't cost you anything. You can go outside barefoot and feel the soil, the earth on the bottom of your feet. And that is a form of healing. Uh, there's, there's so many different things that we have access to movement, um, journaling, rests, uh, the release of just crying and communicating to your support system that you need help. You know, and so there, I think we're seeing healers who are coming into community um, very intentionally in, in spaces that have high stress and um, sharing that information. Uh, but at the same rate, I think that we're seeing a lot of people who are not, who are not. Hmm. You know, I think, I think it's, it's a great time to bring in our guest who is no stranger to holding space for all the levels and reasons that you have just described. Um, Tish Jones uh, uh, is the executive director of True Art Speaks, and um, you've, you've seen her involved in many different projects all around, but one that I have found a special place in my heart for is the Village Project um, uh, that is being coordinated as a Black healing space, and I'm so thrilled to get to participate again for that in the amazing work um, that this sister has done in community to hold space for many different folks. So welcome to Bearing Witness, Tish. Give thanks. Give thanks. Glad to be here. So you 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 heard me and Miss Georgia kind of recapping what's happened throughout the week. And so the first thing that we always do is give a chance for our guests to kind of respond to what what you heard us talking about and what's coming up for you as you listen to some of that recap throughout the week. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, the readiness to um, provide a reason for harm. Uh, enacted by persons of European descent against uh, non-European folk in community, right? So uh, the phrase visibly drunk has come up. I don't know what it means to be visibly drunk. You know what I mean? I've not 
I just have not heard that before. Typically, you have to go through some sort of test to figure out whether or not a person is actually inebriated. But that phrase has been being tossed around. Also, you know, speculation around mental health is a really interesting thing. So white folks get afforded reason um, before many other folk are afforded reason um, and without any proof or any merit. And that that is the first thing that came to my mind um, when when just hearing about Nicholas Cross and, you know, this unfortunate, really it is an unfortunate situation because a woman lost her life and other people were injured. Right. Um, and yeah, I think that's something that we need to, we need to address. Like we really need to address the pattern of that, the history of that, the ways in which that is a consistent violence that is enacted upon our community and other BIPOC community members um, in terms of, the ways in which we have to, we're forced to try to empathize with folks who cause harm. And whether drunk or not, that, that doesn't speak to a person's intention, right? So there's a way in which there's something is being excused before being investigated. And I think that, um, you know, we have to learn how to lean into the hard conversations is, is something that I'm thinking about, you know, because Winston Smith was not offered those same reasons Hmm. you know um and we're you know for it for those reasons to be applied to a person who and uh who chose violence or um who ended someone's life right um in the same exact space and while people were holding space and grieving the loss of winston smith's life at the hands of police winston smith should have also been afforded those reasons right and not been um misquoted and you know framed in this terrible way by the star tribune right which they just had to redact um and pull back some statements because they said some things that were unfounded and unsubstantiated but that's what happens to black folks Hmm. right um yeah we got to get in control of the narrative y'all that's the thing that's coming up for me like we got to really think we have to we have to get out of the way so that people can be um fearless and feel like they have permission and support to use their voice, right? So that additional stories can surface. Hmm. And once those additional stories surface, then we then have narratives, new narratives, counter narratives, right? And that's where the narrative shift and the narrative change happens. You know, our organization is built around narrative, you know, a lot of narrative change and narrative shift. That's the crux of why we do storytelling at our organization through the arts. And that's been my work since I was a baby, right? Those of us who grew up under the griots in our community, that's what they've been teaching us this whole time is to tell our stories and not be afraid to use our voice. And if we don't do it, you know, we will be um, painted as the perpetrator. Every time. Every time. You know, and I think about the facts too, like the lack of grace that you talked about, the lack of reason that was given to uh, Winston Smith. And then with Nick Nicholas Cross, there's actually, there's no evidence to substantiate that. I I wonder if he was in fact drunk, why was he not charged with DUI? He has three charges and none of those charges is DUI. So it just doesn't add up. And then it's a little frustrating to see you have individuals who uh, 
were arrested the next day or two days later uh, that were very active in apprehending him. And it feels as though those individuals may have been targeted uh, as they are really trying to quell any uh, gathering that's happening in that space. Tish, uh, changing the narrative is something that's very um, embedded in my work as well. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the uh, James Baldwin interview that surfaced. Uh, We learned that ABC did this interview decades ago. They never released it. It's surfacing now. And uh, my initial thought was, this is why it's so important that we archive our own stories within our community. But with you uh, also doing this work centering in um, narrative shift, have you heard about that story? And and what were your thoughts about them uh, not releasing his story for decades? You know, I think there's so many layers and nuances to, to different things. I don't know. I'm going to say off top that I don't know enough about that particular industry to know what contracts were signed, what agreements were made. Right. Like I have to put my hip hop head hat on in this instance, because there are contracts that some of our people were tied into with hip hop where they did not understand what they were selling to our people. They did not understand what they were financing and the the NDAs that they were forced to sign and et cetera. pigeonholed them for years before they could actually speak about it, you know, and before they could actually grow into a particular type of consciousness that made them aware. I'm not putting that on our beloved James Baldwin. What I am saying is that um, the, the, the folks that we're dealing with have institutionalized, they have systematized um, these racist acts. They have, um, they have made it their business to take ownership over our stories and our voices and to co-opt them and to reshare them when they when they want to, when they can. And specifically, when you think about, you know, these major publications, TV shows, uh, you know, Warner Brothers, Disney, all of that stuff. Part of the reason why they re-release things is so that they can keep it relevant and keep their ownership over it. There's a certain moment if you don't remaster a certain thing, if you don't re-release a certain thing, you kind of you got to let it go. But you don't want to do so. There's there's just different different ways in which different industries have a a foothold on things. And I think now that we are where we are now, right, and we have all of this knowledge, we have all of this access, we have so many more black people in media, in press, in film production, um, owning their own spaces, right. So it's like I think um, we talk a lot of stuff about Tyler Perry, but the brother got a studio, yep. you know, a big <laughs> studio. You know what I'm saying? So it's like why don't I'm not going to say what he's doing is this, that, that, or the third. What I am going to say is that that does afford us an opportunity, right? And when people start to build those kinds of institutions for us, um, I think we should be thinking about, or we could be thinking about rather, um, more innovative ways to tell and own our stories, um, ways that are closer to, you know, our firsthand experience, our lived experience and ways that give us the power to tell our stories in the way we want to tell them versus in a time where it's cute and sexy to care about black people. Um, and to, to, to show that you have some sort of connection to black life and specifically a black thought leader, a celebrated and loved black thought leader, such as James Baldwin. You know, there, there's a, you you bring to mind again. I, I'm I'm all about connecting these, these patterns, right? To be able to to and and because it's what Elder Mahmoud taught me to do when I was young. 
you know, is to connect those patterns. And one of the things that 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 I'm seeing here that actually connects all the way through, you talk about the the grace that was given, right? Um, also speaks to a pattern of us um, constantly being in a space of being made to care for and about uh, white folks. Um, and 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 let me be clear about that with data facts before folks take that as a as a as a colloquial or or hyperbolic statement. Um, not only do we have that history throughout our bondage of having to be caretakers, but um, Nicholas Cross, the, the the way the narrative was 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 in, in the care that we we're that folks were taking to care for this person and their narrative um, was also shown in the, in this case of Dylan Roof. Um, where you know it, it's being made to be as happenstance, but we we have to be clear that church is historic. That wasn't a random choice, right? This is a church not only that was doing work. Um, you know, Reverend Reverend um, uh, Pinckney was was somebody who had been been real vocal that a church is historically the site of Denmark Vesey, right? Who under the suspicion, right? And really what we're talking about is the successful navigation of a conversation that was inclusive of white folks. This is something that's often not talked about in that story historically, is that he was making inroads of having folks, raising the consciousness of white folks in their opposition to what was happening in that area. And then the narrative was given out that it was a quote unquote planned revolt and they were massacred. The community came back and rebuilt the church, rebuilt the space and the foundation and kept that tradition going and that's what made that a signal. And yet we're going to give him a hamburger and talk about his mental health status. The, the, the fact that Tamir Rice is called a young man and the shooter of the, in the Colorado, the, the Batman shooter was called a troubled, troubled you, you know, troubled young man. Um, you know, we, we are constantly in a space of pattern and care for folks. Um, you know, that's, this is, this not new. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's important to bring that forward. So I'll tell you what, when, you know, I was going to say this when, before Georgia finished her thought, because what's so interesting to me, and you know, I applaud it, and I'm also curious. Any animal, if you attack, when you attack animals, they defend themselves. You know, I think about it. You know, that's it's it's a natural thing for all species to defend themselves when they are attacked, right? And it's so interesting to me, you know, the way that Black people show grace. And the fact that black people are not even, we are not even permitted to be enraged. We're not permitted to like keep our own bodies safe. That's an interesting thing for me, right? And to, to your point in these patterns, the other pattern is how graceful we are and we protect these folks. That man was apprehended. He was held. The, the, the gentleman who drove his semi-truck mm. through a protest was protected by black people and held until the police came and apprehended him. He could have killed so many people by driving that semi-truck onto that closed freeway, somehow, some way, jeopardizing all of those people's lives. But he was held until the quote-unquote authorities arrived, right? Which is the same thing that just happened with Nicholas Cross. We have a pattern of even stifling what is natural to anyone and everyone else. That's not new and not even on a local level. Every other species that exists on this planet, because with the experience that we have, we know we don't have that right. We can't protect ourselves. We can't protect our young. We can't protect one another. And we have to keep this white person or this person who's threatening our lives. We have to keep them alive because otherwise the narrative gets flipped really, really quickly. Right. Especially when we're applying grace already for attackers, for perpetrators. They're already because of their skin complexion. And because of our skin complexion, because really it doesn't matter. As long as they're not black, 
whatever their skin, whatever they are, we become, we are the aggressor. We are the perpetrator in any situation, even when we are defending our lives. Um, if the other person is not black because of anti-blackness, anti-blackness is so rampant in every community. That's all that is needed. Right. So I'm like, that's a pattern for me where I'm thankful to black people and I'm thankful for black people because they keep showing the world, how graceful we are, mm. how generous we are, how loving we are, that we are not, we, we are not on attack mode. We're like, Hey, you're wrong. Let's, let's pray for justice. Let's hope for justice. We're going to wait until the police arrive because the system, this, you just drove your car into the protest. You are obviously wrong. People are hit, injured. And then the next day somebody passed away. So this, we know we're going to receive justice this time and not a single headline has given us a peak of justice, not one. As you process everything that our community has endured over the last year, year and a half, how do you see this, you know, if if this is put in a time capsule and we look back on this in terms of history, like how how would you describe the era, the moment that we're in? You know, my mind has been sitting with uh, Octavia Butler because I don't know why we think we're not in every moment we've ever been in. I can't, I don't think that we're, I don't think we're outside of every other moment that we have been in before. This is, there is no time capsule on this to me. Um, it looks different. And because it looks different, people, for me, man, people are kind of hopeful that I don't understand. Um, the the rate at which they're killing us, the rate at which they're weaponized against us. Jamar Clark's killer was out there with a gun in his hand. So what? How are we not where we were five years ago? Because <laughs> he's standing right there with the gun over black people. So, yeah, I don't have a time capsule on this. You know what I mean? I feel like I am I am curious. I'm. It's sad to say, but I'm going to say it. I'm waiting for Nat Turner. Mm. I'm waiting for uh, Harriet Tubman. I'm wondering who of us are these folks because something has got to give. And it ain't the other side. The other side ain't given. This This... You just blew my mind. And it happens often when I talk to you. So let me just name that as a pattern that I actually enjoy. Um, but but there's something to our ancestral practice, simultaneous spot. No, no time. I just want to repeat these words back. I don't have a time capsule on this. I don't know that we're not simultaneously in these spaces and, and you know, consistently at the same time, which actually tracks to our... <laughs> Uh, guiding cultural ethos throughout generations of of African thought and philosophy, so that that just got my theological brain just just swimming right now. Um, but also your reference to um, Octavia Butler, and the first thing that comes to my mind is Kindred. So I don't know if it's directly there, but she has so many writings. But you know, even in that space, um, being forced in a position to be to go back through time to care for an abuser in order for your existence to remain and constantly fight to get back home to a white spouse. Like, 
that kind of 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 question raising, folks. I mean, Octavia Butler's deep. Huge plug to read. Amazing author, Octavia Butler, futurist, um, Afrofuturist, philosopher, um, you know, prophet. <laughs> um, prophet, prophetic. But but and so and so that's where my question comes to. There, there's a if we're going to look at all the patterns, both the negative um, and the, the, just just all the patterns, because you know, there's, I don't want to put the false binary on it, right? Um, but if we're looking at all the patterns, there is also the pattern of the prophetic voice that comes forward. All the folks that you name began with prophetic voice. Uh, Harriet spoke a prophetic vision about what is to come before the activity um, that she undertook to undermine this this horrible institution. Nat Turner spoke of a prophetic voice. We got We can't forget uh, the 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 pastoral philosophy that undergirds Nat Turner's space of prophetically speaking about a space that of what could be. Um, we we gotta we gotta think about John Brown's prophetic voice. Right, a spoke a prophetic vision of the world as it should be, um, that precedes the action that needs to be taken to get to that space. And I'm just curious, you know, right now we see attacks on even the ability to tell our narratives. We started this conversation with the narrative, and we see that we have no choice but to start telling and enshrine and bold and 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 what is what's the word to to undergird our ability to tell our own stories because we have federal policy attacks and state policy attacks on the ability to even tell a narrative juxtaposed to the same hypocrisy that we've lived in, the duality that we've lived in in this United States, where we passed the bill for Juneteenth while turning around and saying in so many different places that we want to ban even the ability to talk about why Juneteenth matters as a national holiday anyway. So so this dissonance that's already there. So I'm I'm, I'm curious to see what prophetic voices or patterns are you encountering that you, you know, you've already brought forward Octavia Butler's work. I'm curious about your prophetic voice about the world you wish to see and what that looks like for you. I'm going to answer your question by complicating your question, because (laughs) I don't think we can talk about prophetic voice uh, when we're having such a hard time listening. Um, Hmm. I really want to end there, but I know we need, I need to figure out how to draw that conversation out because it's really like, for me, it really like, that's the sound bite Mm. that I think is really what it is. Uh, How are we going to hear it? So, I mean, how deep you want to take it, right? Because there's the, uh, you know, there's the, the house Negro and the field Negro, if we're really talking about it and there's ways in which it's, uh, and I'm not saying, you know, it's, uh, we have to, there, there seems to be a way of some folks who believe that we are free and some folks who are, uh, it's a little harder to listen to the need to fight. We're not in agreement on how to approach the battle. We're not in agreement on to the approach on how to save ourselves. We're not in agreement on the approach of what we need. Um, we're not, so it's hard, it's hard for me to figure out how we're discerning a voice mm. in the middle of having so many different ways of listening and hearing and receiving a message, right? And then the a, a varying idea of freedom because we've been poisoned for so long. Um, you know, for some folks, freedom is a lot of money and in assimilating into this capitalistic system, right? 
Um, I'm not saying either of those things is right or wrong. For some folks, it's, you know what, let's just move back to the farmland and raise our food, you know, as toxin free as possible. The earth is polluted. I don't know how that works out, but, you know, let's move out to the rural area now and do that. They can have the cities back. To some folks, it's let's bear arms. And if it comes down to it, clack, clack, it comes down to it, right? I think we all have these different ideas of how to do the thing. So I'm curious about a prophetic voice. I think mm-hmm. another thing that the institution has done really well is make activism sexy so the prophetic voice is selling cadillac cars yep i said it the prophetic voice is hopping out of cadillac trucks on major television talking about how they always wanted to be an activist so now something we've never had before we have an activist selling the babies a dream of how from a young age what like the career I've never imagined in the world that we would be talking about career activism, mm. especially when activists, black activists go missing. They die in burning cars. But we have well-known and touring activists hopping out of Cadillac trucks on TV, glamorizing activism and the desire to be an activist as a career that will result in possibly you owning a Cadillac truck. That So I don't know what the prophetic voice sounds like when you're competing with all these other voices and it's hard to hear what the revolution sounds like. Mm, there, that's, that's so complex. And in covering uh, specifically the city coming in to try and, as they said, uh, reconnect uh, 38th and Chicago. I, as a journalist, was looking for both sides of the story and quickly realized that there were three. And there wasn't a lot of conversation about this because the first day when the city came in to really try to reopen the intersection where George Floyd took his last breath, that day was also the same day that Winston Smith was killed. And I never got a chance to go back and look at the way mainstream media covered that story because usually mainstream media really prides themselves in telling both sides. But on that day, there was not two sides. There was three sides. And the reason why I think about that after what Tish said is because there was a group that was, uh, push forward to represent the black community. And there was also another group that had been working to preserve space. And so I think that your analysis is very accurate. And every time I see these divisions, it it definitely fractures the movement, uh, but it's very painful to see. How do we unify how do we how do we unify tish how how do we mitigate those divisions and and come together uh cohesively as a collective to move forward and and agree like this is the direction these are the things that we need is is there a way to to do that you know the all of the wonderful black folks that i've read and respected and all of the black folks that have ever taught me, even if they have diverged from some of what their words were, 
when I was coming of age, when they were forming my mind, it was never about being in full agreement. We never had to be a hundred percent like all black people are, we feel this way and we're doing this thing. We, we all had a common goal. The common goal was our liberation though, right? We're not going to do a thing that's going to derail our liberation, our collective liberation. I think that one for me, if we can get back to keeping the main thing, the main thing, our collective liberation, not your family's liberation, not your family's financial wealth, not your family's political clout, not your personal agenda, not your desire to be the most well-known, the most recognized, the most quoted, the person with the hashtag on the cover of the local magazines getting hit up by, you know, CNN and ABC and NBC and all of that, but our collective liberation. What is going to be best for Black people? What is the thing that is going to keep all of us alive and breathing? How can we all eat? How can we all survive? What is the kind of education that we all need? What should be passed down to generations? What is working for our collective liberation, right? And removing our egos so much so much so that we can receive when we are wrong. We can apologize when we make a mistake. We are brave enough to say, I don't know. I did not know. Pardon me, I was wrong for that. And keep it pushing, right? Like unity to me, what I was taught, you know, involves humility, education, and a, a collective goal. You know, I think. Again, there's so many different voices in our head, and that is intentional. That's intentional. TV, radio, social media, all the things, all the things, all the time, right? White folks is in our head. The white gaze is everywhere. I don't know. You, like, the white gaze is everywhere. White folks are about to be listening to this conversation. The white gaze is everywhere, right? We police ourselves in the way we talk because of the white gaze. There's white supremacist stuff that comes out of our mouth and forms ways that we think sometimes and we have to work to unlearn that stuff. So unity is in that. It's in remembering that. It's in checking that. It's being like, it's in having accountability partners. It's in tribe. Again, the main thing is the main thing. Our collective liberation. Where is your tribe? Do you have tribe? Has tribe consented to this thing? Tribe. Tribe feels like this is a good idea. Tribe is rocking with this. That's like, that's where it's at, yo. That's where it's at. There can be some, you know, dissent. There's going to be some, I don't think that's the thing, but when we're actually moving as a unit, you know, I mean, I think about that in the way that we've set up. So we've studied different Afrocentric practices and, you know, in terms of hip hop culture, like the way that we've set up some of the ways we move as an organization, some of the ways we've moved as organizers and community where it's like, hey man, I think, I think we can do this other thing, but I'm moving with the, with the crew. Mm-hmm. It doesn't ever have to be a hundred percent, but I'm moving with the crew. You know what I'm saying? But the whole crew is consulted. We don't leave nobody out of the process. In my opinion, I could also be wrong and I'm really, really open to that. Um, but I think the main thing got to be the main thing. We got to be trying to get free. We can't be trying to 
get blinged out. We can't be trying to uh, own the most property. We can't be trying to, to, you know, be the, to have a Cadillac truck. You know, we can't be trying to be the most contacted by the press. That If that is the goal, then we're off mission because our mission is supposed to be to get free because we ain't, to my estimation, we are not free yet. And you can look at multiple measures across one of many of our sectors to see that that is true. Um, I love the way that you put uh, put things into perspective in, 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 in ways that a poet truly can. Um, and so I really appreciate that. And, and you've got my mind swimming. So I appreciate that putting some fat on my head to borrow from Lissa Jones that I'm going to have to go through and it's going to work its way into some sermons coming up soon. Um, and so I thank you for that. What, one of the things um, that I find it very hard is that um, ours, when we talk about a, a Black collective sense, right? We're a collectivist, uh, you know, a cultural space. Our axiology has been collectivist is, is, is in time immemorial. Um, and the challenge with the collectivist organizing space and, and having that as a centralizing axiology is the fact that there has to be a way to deal with all of the voices that are around. And we see um, in, in, in multiple experiences, our indigenous communities, if you take the story of the Cherokee, right, the reason that the um, Supreme Court backed decision to not remove Cherokee from their land was backed by the Supreme Court. And yet it was the fracturing of community and the following the voice of a small faction of folks who you know, you know, following Major Ridge, who who signed the Treaty of Echota with Andrew Jackson, of course, but did it for the reason of I've seen how all this has gone in the past. Um, but instead, you know, it was it was it was we allowed the fracturing to happen, and we've talked about that on, on Bearing Witness as well. That 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 frag the ways that fracturing is utilized, and we have historical example for that. Um, fracturing was utilized in Bacon's Rebellion when 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 black and white folks bound together to overthrow. Um, the tyranny of, of 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 rich planters, and it was fractured by giving status. And so, I think there's there's. I just want to want to point out some of those historical patterns that we've seen over and over again that back up many some of the points that you that you um, so eloquently put forward. And I think um, that those have to be held in front of us um, as a collectivist um, with a collectivist axiology. Communities of particular communities of color who who all shared this thing, um, and being a coming from a collectivist mindset space. Um, also have to contend with what um, what it takes to do that. Um, and I think you pointed that out that uh, brilliantly um, that needs to be put onto the table. One, one of the things, uh, recent examples that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at about that is it took my family, um, as we typically do, um, to visit family in the South. So we're visiting a family in Alabama, um, in, 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 in Georgia, and, and just reconnecting them so that they have that story to tell. Um, and I just thought, thought it was amazing to be sitting at an Outback Steakhouse with new relatives and finding out that those new relatives have a massive arsenal. Like, I, 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 I'm not part of a gun culture family, uh, <laughs> but I have family members who are. And so I'm sitting there across the table from uh, a family member who's a biker, who who is like, is thinks is we'll talk a lot about individual rights and liberty. Um, and we have very different political organizing views about the world. And it was fascinating to be able to just sit in love across from that family member. And at the same time, because our waiter looked like Tupac, have a bet. Uh, we were betting quarters on how many Tupac songs we can reference until the waiter caught on what we were doing. All of that happened in the same time. That's the beautiful thing that can happen with the collectivist 
um, center space that, as you said, lets the main thing be the main thing, no matter what, we're riding out of there as family. And, and I think that's a powerful recent example that I can point to to help make sense and make real some of the things you just said. So I, I just need to say that just to apply learning. What Elder Mahmoud said, it doesn't matter what you learn if you can't apply it tomorrow. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I wanted to give the honor to that. We've got a lot of movies coming out, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Centering black people in there, you know. Uh, one, a really good example of that, brothers who disagreed, you hear me? But they stayed in the room. They took a break, they blew some steam and they came back in the room. And that's one thing that we are out of practice with, right? Like we blow people out of the room to the degree where they never come back, Mm -hmm. right? Or we get upset and we leave the room and we never come back, all for a difference of opinion. And we don't get to hear and comb through to find the nuggets in other things because we not, somehow we grew out of uh, loving critique. We, we've, mm. we've come to see critiques and criticism and feedback as a diss. Everyone I've read, everyone that I grew up reading, again, and the elders that formed my mind, even if their feet have gone away from their words, that's what they taught me when my mind was forming, right? To stay in the room. So one night in Miami, mm is a good example of people who stayed in the room and came back in the room. You know what I'm saying? And they taught each other, right? Like I love I'm, the lessons that were learned yes. by those really difficult exchanges and being in the space. We have got to learn how to stay in the space, even if it's hard. We've got to learn that disagreement is a part of the process. But if we're not in the room and we don't want to come to the room because we're offended, because we're mad, because we think this thing and that thing, we not, that's not the collect that movie right there. I love it for that. I love it because they stayed in the conversation. And it was a hard conversation. But at the end of that, you saw the fruit of that labor. You saw the depth of that relationship, you know, and some of the vanity was shed. Mm. Some, and that's sometimes what needs to happen as well for all of us, myself included. I'm not, you know what I'm saying? Like, we all fallible, man. All of us, fallible people, all of us, you know, mm. imperfect beings, all of us. So it ain't that one person's way is the right way. And when we're in the room with other people whom we remember that we love and respect and that we should love and respect. And in this instance, I will say should, because I do believe that love is the only, it's the gotta be the root of the practice. It's gotta be the pedagogy. It's gotta be the, the spiritual center that you're moving is for me. Right. But that's an act of love to tough it out. Hmm. That sounds real prophetic to me. Yes. <laughs> Yes. I mean, you got there. <laughs> nah, man, we got there together. Yeah. <laughs> Collectively. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, we, 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 could, we could talk for days. We've got to, got to rap. And we always rap in the same way with no matter who comes onto the show. And that's asking, how are you being you in this moment right now? How are you being you in this moment right now? So we'll give it to our guests first. Um, I am trying to stay in the room right now. Shay, Miss Georgia? Getting rest. Getting rest. I think I've gone through a long period of work, 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 work uh, that I'm starting to transition into a season of rest. Hmm. Tish, I'm borrowing from our civil rights research days. 
and how I'm being me. We took my babies to, um, to, to Birmingham and Montgomery. And, um, you know, I, I got to share this story, Miss Georgia. Um, Tish and I were, were, were leading a group of youth as we do each year, except, you know, COVID interrupted it, but we're coming back this fall. We go get, get cracking again. So it's coming back on a civil rights research experience that was founded by a couple of brothers, um, Marcellus Davis, Kenneth uh, Turner and uh, Alex Hines. And um, we've been keeping it going in their tradition. They brought us up and taught us how to do it. And um, <clears throat> we were sitting in uh, Mason Temple where King gave uh, his last speech before his assassination. And um, it was real organic how it happened, but we ended up doing, they youth were writing poetry under, under Tish's direction the whole time. And we held an open mic in that sacred space. And these babies got up one by one and started to just, 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 I mean, there wasn't enough tissue in the room, but they were going there to the point where the janitor came and sat down and was touched and they opened up the space for us to have a meal after. I mean, it was, it was just powerful. Um, so I took my babies down to Montgomery and we got a chance to sit with some of the lawyers in the Equal Justice Initiative and learn more about that. But uh, my daughter said, I want to go back. And she'd already seen the monument. She's like, I want to go back and see it again. So my wife and my son went and found food and I took my daughter to the to lynching memorial. And she goes, walks down a couple of corners down to where there's that statement on the wall. And I put the picture up on my Facebook because she's sitting there looking at all of these names and she's facing it directly and she's taking pictures. And you know what this little girl was doing? She was documenting her trip for her friends who don't get to go there in that same way. And so I just got to offer that that's how I'm being me right now is watching my babies make sense of this moment in ways that they could only get when we confront in our real and our 100 about how we engage in, in, in all of this work. Um, and so, you know, Georgia, she's following your lead. <laughs> Tish, she's following your lead, um, helping to bear witness and make sense of this. So home being me right now is just sitting in the awe-inspiring space um, that happens when we tell our babies the truth. So that's on being me right now in this moment. She is following your lead, brother. She is giving that knowledge and that history to others, brother. That is what you do. That is mm -hmm. what you have done. And you do it so well with so much love and so much grace. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And I can't wait till we can get back in them trenches and see and, and <laughs> get more babies down there and that experience. This has been amazing, eye-opening. I hope that anybody who's listening here understands that um, the collective and the many voices that are important and powerful that are needed for that type of collective. Um, oh man, I'm sorry, that's going to preach a long way. So I'm gonna, I'll, I'll make sure to cite you, uh, Tish. <laughs> but I'll pass it over to you, Miss Georgia. This has been Bearing Witness. I want to thank our guest, Tish Jones, Executive Director of True Art Speaks. Um, and I want to thank you, Miss Georgia, independent journalist who's been, been documenting this movement and helping us to bear witness um, as, 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 as only you can. So I'm going to kick it over to you to end this like we do every week. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the racial reckoning project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>